Hello, I'm John Horning, and this is Shaking Scripture's Leaves, a podcast where we think through Scripture one passage, one topic at a time, until we have shaken all of its leaves. So this week, we're going through our second part of the series on why God allows evil. And last week, we talked about 2 Peter chapter 3 and the more evangelistic answer of God is allowing evil day by day in order to give sinners the opportunity to repent. That every single day is one more opportunity to sin- for sinners to turn towards God and accept the gift of salvation that he has offered. But that might not be the most satisfying answer in terms of the actual root of the issue. And so there are, more, there are two more angles uh, from which we are going to c- consider this question of if God is good and if God is all-powerful, why does he allow evil in the world? And the last two answers are the answer from man's perspective, essentially man looking at the situation from our perspective, and the second one is God's perspective. And God's perspective ends up being the technically correct answer, but that's still next week because there is another situation, well, I should say there's another passage that is worth considering and is extremely helpful for considering as we look at the world that we're in and we ask the question of why is this world broken? If God is good and if God is in control, why is this world broken? And so the second passage that's really important to look at as we consider this question is Genesis chapter 3. And the reason why is that the Bible includes the historical account of how the world got to be the way that it is. And so that's worth considering. If we're trying to figure out why the world's broken, then we should probably look at the story of how it got that way. And so when you read Genesis chapters 1 through 3, that is the historical account of how God created the world. Genesis chapter 1 tells the story uh, from a wide-angle view perspective where God creates the world out of nothing. It says, uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, boom, God speaks and everything exists. And after God creates the heavens and the earth, then you have the six days of creation where God takes the raw material which he had formed originally and turns it into the universe that we now see. And so it goes through each of the six days, and on the sixth day, God creates all of the land creatures, including creating people. And then Genesis chapter 2, after the seventh day, where God rests, it rewinds. And it goes back to the sixth day, and it tells the story with more depth, specifically of how God created mankind. Where in Genesis chapter 1, you kind of just have the fact that God made them and then gave them the command to be fruitful and multiply. But in Genesis chapter 2, you have the entire story of God making Adam, realizing that it's not good for the man to be alone, leading all of the animals to be named by Adam and finding no helper uh, suitable for him, and then creating Eve. And so you have the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And then in Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall of mankind. And it's helpful to pay attention to a few key things in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And the first thing in Genesis chapter 1 is just the fact that God is the creator. And there there are some important conclusions that come from the fact that God is the creator. 
The first big conclusion is that God owns creation. When you make something, you own it. And so God, as creator, made creation for his own purposes. And as the creator, he has the right to do with his creation whatever he wants. And as creator, he has enough power to do with creation whatever he wants. So God, there is no force outside of God which can oppose him. There's no force outside of God that can stay his hand or that can force him to do some other action. God is ultimately powerful. There's nothing that even rivals him. Before anything else existed, God was the only thing that existed. Everything else that exists draws its existence from God. And so naturally, nothing else that exists can actually challenge God. God gives source to its existence. And so obviously, God can do with it whatever he wants. The only thing God has to do for something to stop existing is stop maintaining its existence. (laughs) So God is creator, and that means he owns everything. And it also means he is sovereign. He has control over everything. And the third thing that is important to note from the fact that God is creator is that God is the objective standard. Where if, if you're in, you need to, words. If you're in the United States, for example, and you have some dispute with someone else, hypothetically, you can keep appealing to a higher court until eventually you get to the Supreme Court and then they'll settle your case. And after they've given you a a decision, there's no one else you can go to. Well, it's similar like that for God, because there is no higher court than God. If I have issues with a local authority, maybe I can appeal to a higher authority until I get to the king. And then even if I have an issue with the king, maybe I could make the argument that the king is still wrong because while the king did X, Y, Z, God says A, B, C, and God's higher than the king. But then there's no next step after that. And so one of the things that's important to recognize is that God is the standard of morality. And the reason that God is the standard of morality is because there is no higher uh, standard to apply to him. Morality is God. And so when God speaks to Adam and Eve in chapter two, after God has made Adam from the dust of the ground, it says in Genesis chapter two, verses seven to nine, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse 8, the Lord planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so one of the things that we see from that is that God makes us and immediately God is being good to us. God has made a perfect world. And he says that at the end of Genesis chapter one, that he looked on everything he had made and behold, it was very good that God made a perfect world and God made man put us in this world. And then after God made man, He then made the world even more beautiful. He made a garden in Eden for us to enjoy. And so God, one of the things to note, God owes us absolutely nothing. You didn't do anything to earn your existence. There's nothing once you have your existence that you can demand from God. God could have made you exist and then had you do nothing but suffer. And if he wanted to do that, he could have done that. But that is exactly not what God does. 
A God makes you, he gives you existence, a gift that you don't deserve, and then God puts you in a good world for you to enjoy. One of the things that I think about is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, one of the things that Paul's talks about is that everything that God has made is good and is meant to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. That one of the most important ways that you worship God is by enjoying the world that he's put you into and then saying thank you. When in, when in Romans chapter 1, Paul is levying an accusation against non-believing people, he says that they did not honor God as God or give thanks to him. That one of the ways you fail to worship God is by not thanking him. So God made a fantastic world. He not only made us and gave us existence, but he gave us a good existence. He gave us a generous existence. God is morally perfect and God is extremely generous. But God also gives us rules. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Excuse me. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And so one of the things that's essential to consider with this is that God has given us a good world, and then God has given us rules. God has the authority to tell creation what to do. God owns creation, God decides what he does with creation, and people, as a part of creation, are also owned by God, and God also has the right to tell us what to do. And so God is entirely within his right to give Adam an instruction, and God warns Adam, and he says, if you sin, the result will be that you die. And so God does not owe Adam anything. God has been extremely generous to Adam. God is giving Adam the gift of paradise. Eventually, shortly after this, God gives Adam the gift of a wife. And we now know in this perfect state that the only thing that is required to maintain this perfect state is to be obedient to God. And in Genesis chapter three, a lot of us know the story, but the serpent comes to Eve and the serpent tells Eve that God is lying to her, that he, he will not surely die, for in the day that you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Satan says, not only will you not die, but things will be better for you if you just sin. And then Adam and Eve both eat the fruit. And as the result of Adam and Eve both eating the fruit, they die spiritually, Ephesians refers to the previous state of Christians and says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That in a real sense, there was a spiritual death that took place when mankind sinned. And also, the process of physical death began. And so, Adam and Eve, in their sin, they introduced death into the human race. But there's actually more than that. When God is cursing Adam for his sin, one of the things that God says is that the ground is cursed because of Adam. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, Paul speaks about creation, and he says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. 
We talked last week about 2 Peter chapter 3 and the fact that now, because of the brokenness of sin, God is going to eventually come back and destroy this creation so that a perfect creation can replace it. This creation was perfect when God first made it, and it will be perfect again, but God has to destroy the corrupted creation first. That Adam, as the representative of all creation, when Adam sinned, all creation fell with him, not just people, but people as well. And so, a few things to note. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam actually speaks to God, and when God says, why have you eaten from the fruit of which I commanded you not to eat, Adam says, it is not my fault, it's the fault of this woman that you gave me, she gave to me, and I eat. And one of the important things to note from that is that Adam looks at God, and at first glance, it seems that Adam is blaming Eve, but Adam's not blaming Eve. Adam says, it was the woman whom you gave to me. Adam doesn't blame Eve, Adam blames God. And this is a natural human tendency that not only exists in Adam, but it also exists in Adam's kids. That we have a natural tendency to not want to take responsibility for our own actions. And at this point, it's worth just pointing out how absurd that is. Like we said, God does not owe us anything. God made us. There is nothing that we did to deserve being made. There's nothing we did to earn existence. And after God made us, it's not like he made us to suffer. <coughs> Excuse me. God made us and then he proceeded to lavish generosity on us. God made a wonderful creation and he put us in creation to enjoy it and say thank you. God has been generous with us, and then God says, if you sin, there will be consequences. If you sin, you will die. And then Adam sins, and in the, as a result of that, Adam is now in the process of dying, and Adam looks at God and says, this is your fault. Adam looks at God, the perfection, uh, the standard of moral perfection. Adam looks at God, who kept up his end of the bargain, uh, God gave you a gift and said, if you do this, I will do this. And if you do this, I will do this. If you're obedient, you'll live. If you're disobedient, you'll die. God keeps his end of the bargain and not only keeps his end of the bargain, but is extremely generous beyond it. And then we break our end of the bargain. And when the stated consequences of that action happen, we say, oh, this is your fault. We look at God who did not sin, and we, who sinned, look at God and say, why did you let this happen? And it's like just the audacity, right? Because God made a good world, and we broke it. God made good people, and we broke it. Because in James 1, 13 to 17, James, responding to the temptation of people, not just Adam, but people in general, to blame God, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Because we as people, it's not just that Adam, when he sinned, blamed God, it's that we as children of Adam also have that same tendency to when we sin, we blame God. Because in James 1.13, as he goes on in verse 14, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust is conceived, it brings uh, it gives birth to f- sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Because you see, we are the ones who chose sin. We are the ones who chose sin, despite the fact that we knew the consequences of sin was death. And then we look at God who is not responsible for sin, who does not sin, and we blame him. And James says, not only can you not blame God for temptation, but in verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James says, not only can you not blame God for your sin, God is extraordinarily generous. And this is something that's actually significant, by the way, It's not just that God was generous to Adam and Eve before they sinned. And by, um, and as a result, it's not just that God was generous to us before we sinned because even after Adam and Eve sinned, God said in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they did spiritually die. Their spiritual relationship with God was severed as a result of their sin, but, and also the process of physical decay started. But God would have been in his right and within his word to as soon as Adam and Eve even ate the fruit, he could have just immediately struck them dead. But he didn't. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, God extended mercy. Even though he was within his right to execute them, he instead allowed them to live for almost a thousand years. And not only did God allow them to live for almost a thousand years, but God decided that God himself was going to come and then suffer the consequences of our sin so that we could have life. In Matthew 5, 43 to 45, Jesus speaks about loving your enemy. And he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. That even after we sin, there's still a lot of good in this world. This world's not entirely broken, and there's a lot of problems with this world as the result of Adam's sin, but God continues to be good to people. God looks at people who sinned and rebelled against him. God looks at people who deserved judgment, and God's response is, I'm going to be kind to you anyway. Why is the world broken? Because we broke it. Because we sinned. And it's not, by the way, just because Adam and Eve sinned. We talked about this last week as well, but we have a strong tendency to look at all of the problems over there somewhere. And we forget the fact that we are the cause of a lot of problems. There are a lot of situations in a person's life where a person acts in direct disobedience to what God says, and then the natural consequences of that disobedience come and ravage their life, and then they say, oh God, why are you doing this to me? What could I have done to deserve this? And it's like, well, um, I told you that if you did that specific sin, that these were the consequences of that sin, and you did it anyway. 
Proverbs has a lot of chapters right in the front end about how adultery will destroy you. And then people will go commit adultery and they'll feel like, man, it's just so unfair that God is letting my life be ruined by my sexual promiscuity. And it's just like, bro, God told you what was going to happen. You made a decision and there were consequences to that decision. You don't get to blame God for the consequences of your choice. And so we look at God and we blame him and we say, why did you let this happen? Even though we're the ones responsible, but it's not just that God is not responsible for our breaking the world. It's that in addition to not being responsible for breaking the world, God is extraordinarily generous. We already talked about the Jesus, about Jesus example in Matthew five, how God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and God sends the sun on the righteous and the unrighteous. But there's the issue of salvation. You see, Jesus was God himself. Jesus was God, well, still currently is God, but Jesus was God and then decided, I'm going to take on humanity. You see, the humans do need to pay for their sin, and a human does need to pay for the sins of all of these people, but none of them can do it because all of them are too busy paying for their own sin. Like if you've committed a sin, you can't cover anyone else. You can only cover yourself because you've got your own debt to pay for. So God's like, the only way that these people get saved is if I come down there, if I take on humanity, and then I bear their penalty for them. And it's like, not only did did God not sin, not only did God not break his portion of the deal, but God actively took on all of the suffering that we deserved so that we, even after breaking our side of the deal, could not bear the consequences of that. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the thing that Paul is saying in those verses is, if you had something preeminently valuable— If you had a righteous person, they might be worth giving your own life to defend. The problem is no one is righteous. You and I are not righteous. Paul is specifically saying you are worthless. In fact, in Romans 3, he explicitly says that, that all have become worthless because we are sinners and we send ourselves towards sin. And despite the fact that we are worthless, despite the fact that we offer nothing to God, despite the fact that we deserve the penalty of our sin and our decisions, even so, God said, you know what? I'm going to die for you anyway. And when you think about how wild that is, because it would be as though I made a car and then I decided, you know what? I love this car. And despite the fact that this car broke down, I know that I can be ruthlessly tortured for two years and then at the end of those two years be executed. And if I go through all of that extraordinary pain and torment, then my car will be able to live past me. You know, for some reason or another, I don't know what circumstance would lead to that circumstance being able to (laughs) save a car, but that would never happen. You would never have a person who valued something they made so greatly 
that they would be able to undergo that sort of suffering for it, and yet God made us. There is significantly more distance between God and us than there is between us and a car. And God looked at us and he said, you know what, I'm going to die for you. And in Romans 8, 38 to 39, Paul looks at Christians, people who have accepted that sacrifice, and he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I mean, David looks at that whole circumstance, and in Psalm 8, he looks at God and he says, when I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And what is the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Jesus has made us members of his family. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about the fact that we have been adopted as sons of God. And you have given him dominion over the work of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. Elsewhere in the Bible, first of all, in Genesis, when God talks to Adam, he says that Adam will be the ruler of all creation. So we as mankind are stewards of all creation. But also in the new heavens and new earth, there are passages that say that we as Christians are going to judge angels. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the seas. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That God is so good that despite the fact that we weren't worth saving, that God went so far beyond anything that was required of him to show extraordinary love to us. And then we look at God and we say, why, oh, why do you let bad things happen? And it's like, bro, God made you. God lavished good on you. And then God says to humanity, if you sin, you will die. If you obey, you will live. And then humanity sinned, and then humanity died, and we say, why did you let this happen? You need to take responsibility for your own actions, right? And we as a species need to take responsibility for our own actions. Adam sinned, and he doomed the entire race, but we also talked last week about the fact that all of us are contributing to larger problems that a lot of the suffering that people experience on a day-to-day -day basis is actually the, pro is the result of human sin. And there's things like hurricanes, there's things like volcanoes, there's all of that, sure. That is not the vast majority of our experience. The vast majority of our experience, our suffering comes from the sin of other people and from our own sinful choices. And so we have a bunch of suffering in our life and we have a bunch of suffering in the world that is directly caused by people being sinful and then we look at God and we say, God, if you're good, then why are you letting this happen? And it's like, dude, you're doing it. You don't get to blame someone else for your own decisions and actions. The reason that there's suffering in the world is because people are sinful. The reason there's suffering in the world is because Adam sinned. The reason that there's suffering in your life is oftentimes because you're sinning. And the reason that there is sin and brokenness in the world is because people are actively pursuing that sin and brokenness. And we like to separate the consequences of our actions from the decisions that we make, but you really can't do that. And so 
that is an extremely important like angle from which to consider the question of if God is good, why does he allow evil in the world? And it's just to remember that God is good. God is holy. You're the one who broke this. And we need to actually remember that the responsibility for that lies on humans. But there still is the question of, well, if God's all powerful, if he knew that Adam was going to sin, why did God make Adam in the first place? God could have made it so that there just wasn't the tree in the garden. And even if God put the tree in the garden, God could have made it where Adam just wasn't able to eat the fruit. God could have done that, right? He's all powerful. He is the creator. He could have done that. That's true. And so there is the question of why is it that God let us sin? Why is it that God allowed us to do the things that resulted in suffering? Why did God put him in that situ- put himself in that situation where in order to save us, he was going to have to bear all of that penalty on his own, which there's an entire series of podcasts that could go into to discussing that issue of the sufferings of Christ for the salvation of people and God's love and all of that. There's, there's a lot to say about that. But there still is that question of like, okay, why did God let that happen? Because he could have made it not happen. And that is the answer that we're going to be approaching next week. Next week is going to be the actual, like, technically correct answer of if God is good and if God is all-powerful, why does he allow sin and the brokenness in the world? We are going to talk about that next week, and we're going to talk about it from the book of Habakkuk. So, same token as this week, uh, if you read Genesis 1 through 3 ahead of time, good for you. And if you want to read Habakkuk 1 through 3 before we talk next week, then enjoy. Good for you. Because Habakkuk does address that question, and other passages address this question too. And we are going to be looking at more than just Habakkuk, but specifically I'm going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 2. And Habakkuk does address this question of, if God is good, why does he allow evil in the world? Because that's a fair question to ask, and it's like, you might as well know. But before we address the question of, why does God allow evil, we do need to start from a position of, God's allowing evil to continue because he's giving sinner time, sinners time to repent because he loves you. That's 2 Peter 3. We do need to address the fact that we're the ones who broke it. Like we're the ones who took dad's car for a joyride and then crashed it. That was our fault. We did that. We do need to remember that mankind is responsible for the broken state of this world. But next week, we are going to see why God allowed that. And I'm hoping that that's helpful. I'm hoping that's interesting. I'm hoping it's encouraging. But even if it's not, it's still the truth. Um, But all that to say, I'm going to bow my head, pray it out for you guys. And I hope that this was helpful. And I especially hope the next week ends up being helpful. But Lord, thank you that you give us history. Thank you that you've explained to us how the world got to be the way that it is. That we don't necessarily have to come into this world and be confused about the the state of affairs, but rather that you told us how it happened. And Lord, the fact that it's our fault. (laughs) Lord, thank you for the fact that you love us. And that despite the fact that you didn't owe us existence, you didn't owe us a good life, you didn't owe us all of the good and beauty that exists in this world, as broken as it is, that you don't owe us the perfect world that came before it, that you don't owe us the perfect world that comes after it. Lord, you don't owe us all of the costs that you paid to save us. And yet you gave it to us anyway. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take responsibility for who we are and what we've done, to take responsibility for the fact that we are sinners. And Lord, that when we take responsibility for the fact that we are sinners, that we would come to Christ. 
because you have made a way for us to be forgiven. You have made a way for our responsibility to be wiped away. And Lord, you've made that available. I pray that you would help us not to harden our hearts and not to look at you and blame you for the state of this world that we broke, that we wouldn't look at you and blame you for the consequences of our choices, but instead that we would recognize that, Lord, we are sinners, that we are broken, that we are responsible for the decisions that we've made, that we are responsible for the brokenness of our own lives, and we are responsible for the consequences of our sin, but that you, in your incredible and odd goodness, that you gave us a way to escape it. I pray that you would help us to soften our hearts and accept that way out, and that, Lord, you would do this for your own sake. Amen.